0: In 2004, I walked into a movie theater and watched one of the strangest, yet most creative movies I'd ever seen. It was called Napoleon Dynamite. You know, that one about a high school outcast quest to help his friend Pedro become class president. My buddies and I didn't quite know what to make of it as we sat in the theater, but the next afternoon as we discussed it around our high school lunch table, the genius of the story and the social observations it makes slowly, began making sense to our young minds. One example, of course, is Uncle Rico. When Napoleon's grandma experiences an unfortunate ATV accident, Uncle Rico moves in to take care of Napoleon. But it quickly becomes clear that Uncle Rico is probably the one who needs supervision. He's a middle-aged man stuck in his glory days when he could throw a football quote a quarter mile. And he's so certain that if coach had just put him in in the fourth quarter, they could have been state champs. But it didn't pan out that way. And he's never let it go. As our young minds began discussing this, we slowly realize he's more than just a goofy character. There's more to his life that isn't being said because that's how great storytelling works. This guy obviously hasn't accomplished much since his high school football career. That's the best he has, and now those days keep him trapped. He won't move on because he lacks the self-confidence to believe that his best days could still be ahead of him. It's genius because as absurd of a character as he is, we can all relate. I mean, hopefully we aren't making home videos of us throwing footballs to show the world we still got it, but to some degree, we all live in the past. We all catch ourselves wondering if the good old days are the best we'll ever have, and that is what sign number three is all about.
1: Welcome to Stories in Scripture, a podcast dedicated to telling the big story of the Bible one piece at a time. My name is Keith.
0: And I'm Ryan. This is the third sign in John's Gospel, and this one was thirty-eight years in the making.
1: The night sky blankets the city of Ephesus. John finds himself looking at the sky more and more lately. The night sky, especially. He's not sure why, but he feels more productive at night. The memories come more freely, like waking dreams. Something about the stars, maybe. Their sheer multitude reminds him his days are small now. And with that comes the memories. It has been three days since he first summoned the scribe. Three days since his old mind and body found the energy to finally tell his story. He's not sure how he feels about it yet, but he knows he must continue. He's beginning to see the shape of it, however slowly. He hasn't thought about these stories in years, let alone told them to anybody. But each day, news of another disciple's passing comes. He knows that if he does not do this now, the stories of Jesus may not be lost forever. John wasn't exactly known for his sentimentality. He liked to live in the present moment, for the next task. Most of his life had been on the move, but old age had taken that from him. He sighs as he hobbles back inside. The inaction of the last three days would have bothered him years ago. Now he knows better. As he thinks about his former life, tears fill his eyes. He remembers the thrill of traveling with Jesus. Those three years with his rabbi were without parallel. Even the decades since, traveling with the other disciples, spreading the good news. Those three years, so incredible and so much easier, not just because he was younger, Something about being with Jesus made the whole world easier, simpler. He longed to be back to those good old days. He sits in quiet and stillness. These moments were his friend. It took those decades of excitement and thrill to understand that. The peace of a job well done. The reward of a life well lived. Peter had told him that once. Paul too. He hadn't expected it from either of those two men. Now he understood what his friends were trying to tell him. He sees the young scribe hustle up the road to his house, so much like himself all those years ago. Eager, ambitious, full of pride and vigor. John can tell just by the way the young man walks. He's arrogant, projecting a trust in his abilities that he surely doesn't feel. John knows what that is like. John's heart softens towards him. He realizes in that moment who he's telling the story for. The scribe can tell by the way the apostle is sitting that there would be no small talk before they begin... He hurries to his place with fervor. He wants to prove John he is worthy of the task. Before he gets all of his supplies ready, the apostle has already begun. The pool at Bethesda always made me sad.
0: This is the story of the third sign Jesus performs, or Better said, it's the story of the third sign John writes down. Remember, all of these signs are just that, signs pointing towards something bigger. These seven signs are building a cumulative case for the thing they're all pointing towards, and this one is really important. At first glance, it appears to be a story about a man and his map, but like all of these signs, it will quickly become clear that there is a lot more going on here. The man in this story has a lot going on just beneath the surface, and Jesus is about to help him work through it all.
1: Another feast meant another journey to Jerusalem. That was the only consistency in their travels, Jerusalem for feasts. John and the others liked to joke that rabbi must love to eat since so much of their time together was spent at the table. In truth, Jesus kept the law of Moses. Their frequent trips to Jerusalem was about obedience and celebration. John sometimes felt it was a wasted time. They could be doing so much more out in the field. The others loved it, Peter especially. The streets teemed with people. The noise made it hard to chat to the person next to you. It was the Sabbath, so they headed towards the Sheep Gate, a favorite festival spot. John can't remember the last time it was this hot in the city. It was oppressive. His tunic clung to his skin, sweat dripped and ran on his face. The dust from the road coated everything. It was unbearable. Near the gate was a pool. Bethesda. The group made their way to the entrance.
0: The pool of Bethesda was an interesting place. Everyone in town who was sick or lame would gather there because they believed the pool had healing powers. There was a legend surrounding the pool that went something like this. Every once in a while, an angel would come and stir the water. In that moment, the water took on a healing principle. Therefore the first person to make it to the water inherited those healing principles. Now. We hear that and think, what an odd superstitious thing to believe. But we're 2000 years ahead of these people. We've spent those years learning, investigating, testing all sorts of different hypotheses and growing. So let's give them some credit here. At that point in history, that's just where they were. As we grow and progress as human beings, we probably should look back on certain things those who came before us believed and see them as primitive. But here's what's fascinating, Jesus was so far ahead of his time as we are about to see while they're all betting on legends to fix symptoms, he's about to ask all the right questions to cut through the weeds and get down to the root of what's really going on.
1: John's heart sinks as they enter. People are everywhere. Some grouped around the five colonnades, some on the edges of the pool, all of them hoping today would be the day someone would help them. The blind, the paralyzed, the lame, all desperate gather here. These are the people Jerusalem has left behind, the heirs without life or joy. The disciples follow Rabbi through the labyrinth of people. John looks at them. They all stare at the water, waiting. The water hypnotizes them. For many, it is why they continue to wake each morning, trapped by the hope it is supposed to bring. The rabbi moves with purpose. He seems to be looking for someone in particular. Ahead near the edge of the pool, John sees an old man avoiding eye contact with Jesus. Rabbi heads straight for him. Those around the man begin to notice. Those who can shift to get a better look. Others eagerly ask those around them to describe what is happening. And something is about to happen. The air fills with life for a moment.
0: This one scene brings up a ton of questions. For one, just how calculated were the rabbi's moves? I mean, he's in a space full of so many people in need. So why did he choose this man? Did he just pick him at random? Was it a special revelation? Or was this man just the oldest and in the most need of help? What about John? Why did he decide to include this story? And while we're at it, why didn't Matthew or Mark or Luke why tell this story and yet leave out so many others? What was it about the man and his mat that resonated so deeply with John? Good questions are like vehicles. They can move us through the text and help us wrestle through what's really going on. And so the frustrating yet beautiful truth is that these stories bring up way more questions than answers. And I think that's the point.
1: The man avoids looking at rabbi as the group approaches. He stares off at one of the roofs of the colonnades he glances at the others hoping that the group keeps coming his way but clearly embarrassed by his desperation the shame of his condition hangs on him like the rags he wears rabbi doesn't notice he walks to the man and sits next to him looking up where the man looks john and the others are baffled even after the months they've been together rabbi continues to defy their expectations of him A few of the disciples look on with disgust, whether at the man or rabbi, John isn't sure. John manages to hide his well enough, but his thoughts mirror theirs. Rabbi engages the man in conversation. Something about the way he speaks to people, they often pour their life out to him. This man is no exception. He begins to tell the group his story, heartbreakingly tragic and frustrating at the same time. He's been sitting by the pool for 38 years. Victimized first by his paralysis, then by his family, finally by the world, each sentence gets more and more soaked in pity. Rabbi listens with care. He looks the man in the eye as he speaks. He feels the fullness of the tragedy. But then he interrupts the man with a surprising question, even more shocking than his sitting with the undesirable. Do you want to be healed? Even Peter turns red. The disciple, known for speaking before thinking, is ashamed by Jesus' question. John shifts his weight. The rest glance sideways at each other. The man, however, continues as if he hasn't heard Rabbi. So Rabbi asks again, softer than before, and placing a hand on the man's arm. Do you want to be healed?
0: Do you want to be healed is a haunting question. The obvious answer is, yes, of course, everyone does, but there's more going on here. Think about what being healed would really mean for this guy. See, the question was designed to dig past the surface and get down to what's actually happening because if this man gets healed, then he has to give up any excuse he has not to thrive and live a full life. Jesus is asking him if he's willing to embrace the reality that maybe there's hope for his future. Because hope for the future means the possibility that maybe he'll fail again and maybe this time it will be his fault and he won't be able to make any excuses for why he's laying on his mat all day. What if he can finally run but he falls? What if he can finally work but he gets laid off? What if he can finally have a relationship but he gets rejected? Do you want to be healed is an awfully big question. Jesus is asking if he is willing to open himself up to the world again with all the good, bad, and ugly that comes with it. And saying yes to that takes a tremendous amount of courage.
1: The man pauses and looks at Rabbi for the first time. The familiar shame and pain shows behind his eyes. I've been this way for almost 40 years, the man reminds Jesus. It wasn't always this way. I was a man of influence before. I had everything a man could want or desire. It was taken from me. I am here by no fault of my own. Do you want to be healed? Rabbi asks again, with a patience that John does not feel. Sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to go in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Back in my prime, I could have beaten them all. John reads this thought in the man's face and voice. The wounded pride and shameful need keeps this man from asking for help. He is trapped in the past, not simply in his own body. This man relied on his own strength. He can't any longer.
0: The good old days. We all love talking about them. Why is that? I have a feeling it has a lot to do with a fear that maybe things aren't going to get much better. Maybe it's easier to talk about the good old days because we're afraid that the future is going to let us down. Or maybe, let me personalize that, maybe I love talking about the good old days because I'm afraid the future is going to let me down. The problem is that flies in the face with what Jesus actually taught. If the kingdom of heaven is truly at hand, then the invitation to you and to me is to constantly be stepping into more, into more joy, into more peace, into more patience, into more love for the world, into more life. Maybe we stay stuck thinking about the past because we don't understand that the best days are actually ahead of us. And maybe this narrative that everything is getting worse needs to be called out. And maybe since the future is the place we're all heading, what if we learned to stop looking backwards and started getting excited for what is to come? It's at least worth a try. And let's be honest, I get it. I know the glory days provide a buffer for us. They keep us safe, but at the exact same time, I think they keep us stuck afraid to take the next step, to jump into the abundant life waiting just ahead.
1: Do you want to be healed? Rabbi asks one last time. Locking eyes with the man, so much contained in that look. Tears fill the eyes of both men. Get up. Take your mat. Walk. The man looks at him with a mixture of puzzle and disdain. Did he not just hear what I said? It's impossible. I have nothing. I have no one. I don't deserve this. I'm useless to the world. Besides, what would it be like to simply take up my mat and walk out of here? Where would I go? What would I do? I don't have a life outside of this mat by the pool, and now I'm to give up everything? (sighs) Suddenly, clarity crosses the man's face. Give up everything. He smiles to himself. I have nothing already. What would I be giving up? I've lived too long in fear. I want to be well. Hesitant, the man looks at his legs. He puts one foot flat on the ground. He looks frowned in disbelief. He stares at Rabbi. He takes his other leg and lifts it so that he's kneeling. He looks at the disciples who stare back with wonder. The man stands. For the first time in 38 years, he's standing. He takes a shaky step towards. where? He suddenly stops and looks around. He's not sure where to go. A crowd is beginning to gather around him. He looks for the rabbi who told him to walk, but he and his followers are nowhere to be seen. He turns toward the exit, wondering what life will be like out there.
0: So let's review. What is John really saying? What do all these signs point toward? The first sign happened on the third day when all hope was lost for a wedding. Jesus used the jars usually used for purification ritual to bring life back to a dying party. The second sign happened at the seventh hour when all hope was lost for a Gentile dad and his dying son. But without even going to the sun, Jesus brought life to the dying body. Now this third sign is a bit of a doozy a guy has been lame for 38 years and he's given up hope the only thing he can hold on to is a silly superstition about an angel stirring the pot and the hope that maybe someone will carry him in at the right time so many layers i'll let you take from it what you want but here's one thought that's been working on me this sign is proof of the reality that tomorrow doesn't have to be like it was today. So the addiction that's always haunted you doesn't have to stay. The anxiety that's paralyzed you doesn't have to be your reality. The depression, the pessimism, the whatever, fill in your own blank. Tomorrow doesn't have to be like it was today. Even if today was just like it's been for the last 38 years. Or how how about this, especially if today was like it's been for the last 38 years. Resurrection is always knocking at the door, always ready to break forth. A new day is here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So with sign number three, Jesus breathes life into a hopeless man as if he actually believes that the best is yet to come because as great as those good old days were, there are even better days waiting just around the corner.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Stories in Scripture. You can learn more about our project at storiesinscripture.com, follow us on Twitter at SISproject, or follow us on Instagram at storiesinscripture.